Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we'll be airing a special episode with U.S. Surgeon General and Admiral, let me figure out why they call him Admiral in the show, Vivek Murthy, to talk about the latest things and all things on COVID. But before I get to the Surgeon General, uh, and this is something he and I will talk about, let's talk about misinformation around COVID. And I don't think there's a more dangerous source of misinformation out right now than Joe Rogan. In case you missed it, podcaster, media personality, and <laughs> comedian, uh, Joe Rogan has taken an issue with the coverage he got in response to him saying that after testing positive for COVID, he took a host of other treatments, including a veterinarian deworming drug. This is the same guy who refused the vaccine, and in using his platform that reaches millions of impressionable people every day, Rogan has been virently anti-vaccination and subscribes to the view that young, healthy people in particular don't need to get vaccinated, which is obviously not true and highly irresponsible. Now, if he were just a regular individual, we would just ignore Rogan, but he's not. He's arguably one of the most significant influencer platforms in the world through his podcast and his followers are in the millions. So when he legitimizes literally everything except the vaccine, we need to call a spade a spade and be real that people like Joe Rogan are out here helping people make bad decisions and leading to their death. Our ICUs are filled, not just with the elderly anymore. They're full of unvaccinated young people, children in large part because they believe this nonsense or some believe this nonsense that Joe Rogan believes. Howard Stern summed it up here where most of us are now, including people like Rogan. Here's a clip. i tell you what, as far as I remember, when I went to school, you had to get a measles vaccine. You had to get a mumps vaccine. You had to get, there was a ton of them you got. You still Polio. have to. In order to go to school, you have to have certain vaccines. When are we going to stop putting up with the idiots in this country and just say, you now, it's mandatory to get vaccinated. Fuck them. Fuck their freedom. I want my freedom to live. I want to get out of the house already. I, I want to go next door and play chess. We're sick of it. I think that's the best answer. Thank you, Howard Stern. Now on to our show. So welcome to another special episode, a special edition of the Bakari Sellers podcast. We have Vivek Murphy, the Surgeon General of the United States of America, joining us today. How are you doing today? I know that the world is spinning rapidly on its axis and you are swimming in so many things. But how are you and your family and everybody doing? Well, Bakari, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. It's good to be with you today. Yeah. And thanks for asking uh, about the family. And, you know, we're all doing OK, all things considered. And um you know, I think the pandemic has been tough for everyone, I think, in our country and a lot of folks around the world. And, you know, it's been tough for us, too. We've lost family members. We've had a lot of folks get sick because uh, of the virus. But we count ourselves blessed because we're together. You know, we've got a roof over our heads. We can put food on the table. And there are a lot of families who have not been able to say that during the pandemic. So, you know, all things considered, we're, we're doing OK, just trying to see what we can do uh, in every way we can to help address this pandemic. You know, I, I do work on you know, obviously in government, my wife is also working on the pandemic from outside of government. So just trying to do what we can. Look, before we delve into the pandemic, because I have a lot of questions, personal and otherwise, um, the, the best part about having the show is I get to ask all the experts the things that give me anxiety. But before <laughs> we get to that, 
Uh, we usually start each one of our shows, and we'll do this one and no different, by having our guests kind of walk us through the arc of your career. So walk us through the various stops in your medical career. And at what point did you decide in your medical career that your medical career would also include health policy and go beyond critical care to public health? Well, Bakari, your question almost presupposes there is a plan. <laughs> I'll tell you that uh, there, I, I've never had that much of a plan, honestly, uh, when it comes to my career in life. I mean, I've had plans and they've gotten rapidly discarded because you, know, you can plan and then, uh, you know, life happens to you sometimes. And one of the things that I learned uh, early on was that, um, you know, I actually found it quite stressful to think about like five and 10 year plans. Uh, and I realized over time what I needed to just really focus on was whether the thing I was doing now uh, was really fulfilling and whether it felt mm-hmm. meaningful. And if it wasn't, then to think, well, what's the next step that I could take that would feel uh, meaningful? And that actually has just led me to a bunch of different places. You know, when I was 17, uh, my sister and I uh, began our first journey in the world of public health, uh, building a nonprofit organization to do HIV education work. Now, that was uh, not something I had planned planning for years. It just sort of happened. We had this idea, decided to act on it. But it taught me a lot about what I loved. And I realized that during that experience that what I really loved was bringing people together around a vision of how to make the world better and then working to actually execute on that vision. Uh, and that kind of led me to, you know, to do build another nonprofit focused on rural health, uh, training young women in villages in South India to be uh, community health workers and to help address a whole host of, of health care issues in their communities. And that was a great deal of fun. I was really inspired by, by many of the women that, that we met and worked with. I went to medical school, you know, somewhere along the way. And I, I did that because I was actually always interested in practicing medicine. I was inspired by my parents growing up when they ran a medical clinic in Miami, Florida. That's where, uh, where I live from the age of three onward. And um, I always wanted to to, I didn't understand a whole lot of the science, I got to say, Bakari, behind what they were doing because I was a small kid at the time. But what I did really love and what I was inspired by were these relationships they were building with people. And I, I would see, Bakari, people come in to the clinic looking really stressed and anxious and worried. Uh, and then they would leave looking more at ease because they knew they had a partner in their healing. And there was something beautiful about that. Even as a small kid, I could understand that there was something really powerful happening there. And I, I wanted to, to be a part of that. Uh, when I grew up. So I went to medical school. I love medicine, uh, but I had this inkling that there might be something in addition to medicine that, that I might want to do. So I went to business school along the way just to learn how to build effective organizations, finally, finally finished my medical training, uh, and then found that there was this whole world of social media that was blowing up You know, at, at that time when I was finishing medical training. And I find myself wondering how the world of social media could be used to make our workplaces more collaborative. Uh, and so that led me on this you know, seven-year journey to build what ultimately became a, a company called Trial Networks that uh, built uh, software platforms that enabled greater collaboration of clinical trials. Uh, and then the unexpected step, which kind of led me here, uh, came right after that, which is unexpected because I was actually at a, at a point in my life where I was trying to figure out how to cut down on things. You know, I was working yeah. to build this company. I was teaching in the hospital. I was providing clinical care and seeing patients. And I was like, you know, this feels like I'm a little stretched thin. But then I got inspired, actually, like around 2008 uh, time when the presidential elections were taking place in the country and uh, Republicans and Democrats and everyone was talking about healthcare, how to make it better. And I got to my wondering, I knew, I knew nothing about healthcare policy or uh, about anything in that world. But I knew having worked in the hospital, things weren't 
always working well mm-hmm. and that there are things that we have to do better. So that got me on a whole journey uh, around advocacy. And I began doing work as an advocate of being organizing doctors around the country to have more of a voice in speaking up for the needs of their patients and their communities. Uh, and that's what ultimately led me to the world uh, of policy. But it was an unexpected journey. And I, I continue even to this day to to re- try to remember that lesson, which is that I don't have to figure out the next five, 10 years. I just got to figure out what feels meaningful now. That's dope. You know, some of some of my listeners may not truly understand the work that you do. So for those who are not familiar in the the easiest terms, maybe not Sesame Street, but just a step <laughs> above it, what exactly does the Surgeon General do? Well, that's a great question. Uh, the Surgeon General has two responsibilities, and one of them is to talk to the public and communicate the best available information we have on health. It's based in science and fact and evidence so that people can make good decisions for themselves. And oh, facts and, facts and evidence. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yes, these are, uh, <laughs> these are not as abundant as we hope they are uh, or should be these days, especially on social media, but, but they are important. So, <laughs> so that is one of the jobs of the Surgeon General. And that's involved, you know, talking about issues from smoking, you know, over the years in the Office of the Surgeon General to the opioid crisis and the broader addiction crisis we have to talk about mental health. And in this moment, certainly to working on the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. But there's another job the Surgeon General has, which many people don't know about. And that's mm-hmm. to lead one of the eight uniformed services in the United States government. You're familiar with the Army, with the Navy, with the Air Force, the Marine Corps. What many people are not familiar with is the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps. It is a group of 6,000 plus officers. They're nurses and doctors and physical therapists and pharmacists and public health engineers and a whole host of other public health professionals. And each and every day, they actually work in our communities around the country to help improve public health. And during times of emergencies, we actually deploy them uh, to help respond. So when I was Surgeon General last time during the Obama administration, we sent hundreds of officers to Liberia to help address the Ebola crisis. During this COVID-19 crisis, we've had hundreds actually thousands of officers who have actually moved out around the country to help with everything from testing uh, to vaccinations to shoring up hospital systems that are being stretched in. So the Surgeon General has a privilege of serving as the commanding officer uh, of the Public Health Service. And those are the two jobs uh, that I have as SG. Man, I had no idea. <laughs> if you if somebody if I would have been asked that question on 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 Jeopardy or trivia, I would have lost. I had no idea. So let, let's <laughs> well, jump right that's, into it. That's actually the reason that people are and ask, why does the Surgeon General wear a uniform, you know, with these gold bands and with, you know, uh, the, you know, what looks like a military style uniform? It's because of that role, you know, as the commanding officer of the public health service. So do I call you general or do I call you doctor or do I call you general doctor? Do you take your jacket off at home? Does your wife make you take, do you wear it around the house? I mean, does she have to call you general? Does your wife call you? <laughs> My wife calls me whatever she wants. To call me. <laughs> but no, it's an interesting question because even though the, the, my title is Surgeon General, the rank structure within the Public Health Service Commission Corps follows, is similar to the Navy rank structure. So technically, I'm a vice admiral or a three-star admiral. So people in the service will refer to me uh, as an admiral. And technically, I'm not a general, even though my title is surgeon general. Thank you, Admiral Murphy. Oh, that's th- <laughs> you can call me Vivek. That's my friend. <laughs> now we're friends. Before, so. There you go. So listen, I, one of the questions that, that I have and one of the things I want to jump right in and talk to you about is, can you explain to listeners why booster shots are necessary and what... Uh, what was the inflection for the administration for deciding now was the time for Americans who've been fully vaccinated to receive a booster shot? You know, there's a lot of theories going out around the, the, 
the interwebs and social media, et cetera. And I'm going to be first in line to get my booster shot when I'm eligible. But talk about that for a moment. Well, that's a great question. So Ellen, let me tell you also about, about the process of how we came to this decision. About sometime in August, uh, about a month ago, uh, close to a month ago, uh, is when a number of us who are uh, medical experts and public health experts inside the Department of Health and Human Services came together and we looked at the data, uh, which and we had been looking at the data on a very regular basis around uh, the vaccine and the protection that it offers people. And what we were seeing were two things. Like one was that the protection that vaccinated people had against hospitalization and severe illness and death was still holding up at a really high level. And that was really good news. But we were starting to see that when it came to breakthrough infections with mild infections, that that was starting to happen more frequently. And what that told us was that some combination of the Delta variant and some time-based waning of protection was probably taking place and that the time for boosters was going to come soon. And let me also clarify here, they're called, we call them, you know, they're referred to colloquially as boosters, but most of us think that this amounts to really a third shot, really, if you will. So many vaccines that we get, like the hepatitis B vaccine or the tetanus vaccine or the measles vaccine. You mean those, those, provide. those, I, I don't want to use the word mandated because it's become such a, a, uh, interesting term of art now, but those requirements that we have to do things like be a part of normal society, those vaccinations? Yes, those, which uh, people are required to get to enter school, for example, yes. uh, to come into kindergarten. <laughs> yeah. So those vaccines, those require multiple shots, right? And then once you get multiple shots, you're generally good for a while. And I think many of us suspect that the COVID-19 vaccine will probably require one more dose as part of that primary series uh, for people to have a sustained level of protection. And so based on that data, you know, we put our heads together and we said, our judgment tells us that there's going to come a time soon when those extra shots are required. We want, obviously, the CDC and the FDA to follow their process to look at the data on third doses that the companies were going to submit to make sure that those third doses are safe. And if the FDA and CDC sign off on it, uh, then you know, we'll plan to roll out those boosters. But the reason, in part, we, we talked about this last month was because we knew that when we had to plan right? You got to have a plan. Uh, even if that gotcha. plan changes based on the data, you got to have a plan. And we wanted to tell people what the plan was. Uh, and the second thing is we had also committed to folks that when we saw something in the data that maybe told us that a shift in plan would be necessary, that we would tell them, right? And all of us looked and sitting around the table, the virtual table, that is, looked at that data and we said, this shifts our thinking. So we should tell the public. So that's how it came about. But the bottom line is this, Bakari. Today, we're not telling people to go out and get a booster shot. Right. Well, we are, we're still waiting for the FDA and the CDC to weigh in uh, on the data. Uh, number two, when they do recommend uh, the booster start, and that could be as early as toward the end of this month, September, uh, then we'll be ready you know, to, to offer them uh, to people. And we'll, then there'll, there'll be many places where they can get them, including now 80,000 plus pharmacies you know, around the country uh, uh -huh. and many, many doctor's offices as well. So uh, two questions to piggyback. When you see the amazing work that many of these pharmaceutical companies have done, are there efforts still in place to streamline and ensure they get to market as quickly as they have? I, they're mainly talking about Moderna, for example, coming out with a basically the lemon pepper of, of vaccines. I mean, they, got, they have a, a vaccine and a flu shot all in one that they're trying to market. Is the opera is... Are there still mechanisms in place that will get these vaccines to market safely, um, but in an expeditious manner? 
Well, Bakari, you get points for the lemon pepper reference. That was, uh, I like it. <laughs> I was, it, it's just a special. I don't know. I don't know how Moderna, um, it, my good friend, Michael Harriet from the root said that they should, uh, they should get, uh, Eminem's one shot as their theme song when they, when they roll this out to the market. But <laughs> is the mechanism still in place to get them there quickly and safely? Yeah. So, you know, before these products come out uh, on the market, you know, the, the good news is that they have to go through an FDA process to make sure that they are in fact safe uh, as well as effective. And that process is incredibly important. It's been our gold standard uh, for making sure that what people are getting uh, is actually both useful and it's not going to harm them. Uh, and that's actually why even with the boosters process, we've said that, you know, the plan that we talked about is really contingent on the FDA's uh, final decision. But one thing I, I didn't mention, Bakari, on the boosters front that I, I want to underscore because we can't underscore it enough is the fact that people may need a third shot does not mean that the vaccines don't work, right? The fact that is the vaccines have been working remarkably well to save our lives and keep us out of the hospital. The question is, how do we keep them working, right? And that's why to extend the protection people have from the vaccines, we believe those third shots are going to be helpful. So and that's, that's sort of what folks just need to understand here. This is going to end up being probably like most of the other vaccines we get, which require several shots. Uh, and then will give us a decent amount of protection uh, for some time. And I think that the research or data, and I hear I go, you know, <laughs> being like those individuals who who uh, say they're going to go and do their own research. And when I have a doctor sitting, in, excuse me, an admiral sitting in front of me, but you see how Israel has gone from being the preeminent kind of exemplar of vaccinations to now being a hotspot. Are we learning? Is that what is part of the impetus in driving us to get boosters and to see because we're still learning a lot about this process? Yeah, it's a good question. And it points to the fact that, you know, with COVID, we can't let our guard down. We've got to keep learning. And that means looking at our data in the United States. It means looking at data in other countries like Israel, Canada, the UK. Uh, and so we can learn as quickly as possible. And what we were starting to see in terms of the increase in mild breakthrough infections, we were starting to see that in our data here in the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. We were also seeing that in the Israeli data. But the good news is you, if you look at the Israeli data, the most recent data, where they have actually been now giving people these additional third shots for some time now, and they've done this actually for well over a million people, what they are finding is actually it's having a pretty significant impact on increasing the protection again. Uh, and in a way, extending the protection that people had. So that is good news. And, you know, if we had, like, Bapari, if there was a scenario where we had, uh, let's say, the vast, vast, vast majority of our population vaccinated before Delta came, we wouldn't be seeing our hospitals as full mm -hmm. as they are right now, right? So when people ask the question, well, if the vaccines work, why are we seeing so many people get sick? It's because, it's not that because the vaccines don't work. It's because we're dealing now with the most transmissible, uh, most contagious variant of COVID-19, which is the Delta variant. And it's really just going in a very targeted way uh, and infecting and, and, and really adversely affecting, in particular, those who are unvaccinated. So if you walk into any hospital now that's got lots of COVID patients, you're finding that the vast majority of those patients are unvaccinated. So the experience from Israel is actually consistent with our experience, which is that, number one, the vaccines work. Uh, number two, you've got to make sure that the protection continues, which is why the third shots are important. And if you get enough people vaccinated, you can protect yourself from the variant. But that is the, the challenge. And it's a challenge we're still facing here in the U.S. where we've got millions of people who are still not vaccinated, even though we've got 200 million plus people who had at least one shot. 
So let me, let me ask you this question because you brought up a few things and I, I do want to get to some mental health, mm-hmm. not just my mental health. This isn't a therapy session for me, but <laughs> although I, I would gladly you can do take whatever it. you want, Bakari. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to talk about uh, the unvaccinated that you just brought up. And for me, that that does lead my my twins started school this week, Sadie and Stokely. They started we school at two and a half years old. And, uh, you know, how concerned are you about the low vaccination rates among eligible children and the lack of vaccine for children under 12 and the unique risk it creates for our schools that are now open uh, for in-person learning? Now, we don't necessarily want our kids to be at home, trust me, but we want them to be safe. And how, how are you all processing that? Well, it's a good question, Bakari. And, and, you know, like you, uh, you know, I'm a dad of two small kids and uh, they're too young to be eligible for vaccinations. And so I'm also thinking just as a parent, like, how do I keep my kids safe? Right. And uh, of course, as Surgeon General, I'm going to make sure that all of our kids are safe. Uh, look, I think this is a, ch- a really challenging time for kids, right? There's, there's no other way to put it. You know, you look at the numbers and you see uh, hospitalizations going up with kids. And because, again, this, a lot of our kids who are not vaccinated don't have the protection that many of us who are vaccinated have. Uh, and we know that this is a really transmissible variant, the Delta variant. So uh, we've got to, to do what we can. What that means is that with kids who are 12 and up, we've got to make sure we vaccinate as many of them as possible. Now, the number percentage of kids who are fully vaccinated uh, who are uh, 12 and up is, is going up, you know, but we got to make sure it goes up faster. And that means that yeah. we've got to have, you know, we talk to more parents and help them understand that the science really does support the use of the vaccine, and it'll help our kids not only stay healthy, but get back to their way of life, right? You know, see friends again without having to worry so much that they may become uh, seriously ill. But the second thing we've got to do, Bakari, is thinking about kids like, uh, you know, like Sadie and Stokely and thinking about like my kids and other kids who are under 12 and too young to get vaccinated. We've got to think about what works to protect them until the vaccine is available. And here's what works to protect them. Number one, making sure that people around them are vaccinated. Uh, number two, making sure that when they are going out and when the people in their household are going out and are in public spaces that they're wearing masks, that does work to reduce transmission. And number three, making sure that in our schools, we are taking all of the measures that we know work to help reduce risk. And that includes not just mask wearing, even though that's gotten uh, the majority of attention, but it also involves making sure that we're using testing in schools uh, to screen for infection, making sure that we're using the billions of dollars that were put forth in the relief bill, the American Rescue Plan for schools Mm -hmm. in order to help improve ventilation. Uh, There are steps we can take to keep our kids safe, to keep them in school. My worry though, Bakari, is that in a lot of uh, schools and a lot of communities, these steps are not being taken. And it's particularly painful to see that happen when it's the result of local elected officials or, or states blocking schools from taking measures which we know can help keep our kids safe. I want to turn my attention real quick to something that is not necessarily a different topic, but it's an extension thereof. And it's something that people call the pandemic burnout or this Mm -hmm. next workplace issue that we're going to have to deal with, which is mental health. And since you are now admiral and and the surgeon general uh, of the United States, uh, what is your department, your mission, or just some of the vision that you have in tackling an issue that I talk about? I talked about it in my book. I talk about it freely that directly affects a ton of African-American men, but how are we going to get people the mental health resources they need and connect them hopefully one day when we get to a post-pandemic society? It's, it's such an important uh, question, Bakari. And I think, 
you know, I'm a believer that during times of crisis, uh, as bad as they are, if we look hard enough, we can sometimes find silver linings and things that may help us to grow and be stronger. And, and I think one of the like points of learning that I've taken from this pandemic uh, is that it's given us an opportunity to, to actually ask ourselves if we're living the lives we, re we really want to live, the kind of lives that are going to generate health and happiness and fulfillment for ourselves and our families. What I find really interesting, Bukhari, is when I talk to people about their experience of the pandemic, usually there are some, you know, most people will find something that happened during the pandemic, maybe it changed their result that, that maybe made them realize that the life they were living in 2019 and before may not be exactly the kind of life they want to be living, uh, you know, after this pandemic is over. And I think that that's an important conversation for us to cultivate and to actually have, because one of my biggest worries is that after this pandemic is over, we'll just snap back to going, you know, snap back to 2019 without finding out how we can improve our lives and increase our chances of being healthy uh, and being happy and fulfilled. And our mental health is, is really at the heart of this, right? We know that like a lot of people have struggled with uh, anxiety and depression and loneliness and isolation during this pandemic. Yeah. But a lot of people were struggling with that before the pandemic as well. True. You know, True. I, you know I've, I, I've been really appreciative, Bakari, of what you shared about your own uh, struggles when it comes to mental health. You know, I've also publicly spoken about my uh, challenges with loneliness and isolation over the years as a kid and later as an adult. Uh, these are things that affect a lot of us. And especially during the pandemic, my hope is we can recognize that the mental health concerns are not evidence of being weak or broken or deficient in some way. They're evidence of us being human and going through really challenging experiences and recognizing a really important point, which is that as human beings, we were not designed to operate and manage everything by ourselves. You know, I know that's the narrative that uh, many of us perhaps absorb, like in the homes that we grew up in and the culture in which we were raised. Uh, but the reality is that we do better when we're together, when we support one another. And there's nothing wrong in that kind of interdependence. It's actually how we evolve. Uh, the people who tended to live the longest and do the best and be most protected from predators thousands of years ago, were not the people who say, you know what, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to go out and fight, you know, the saber-toothed tiger on my own. I'm going to gather my own <laughs> and not rely on anybody else. I'm going to watch over the fire all night long by myself. Like Those were not the people who made it. The people who made it were the folks who realized that we are stronger when we work together, rely on each other, and when we build strong, trusted connection with one another. So the question I have, Bakari, for myself, for you, for all of us, for our country and the world is, how can we take this experience of the pandemic and build a better life for us, ourselves than we had pre-pandemic, a life that's mm. centered around people and relationships, a life that recognizes that people and purpose are the key to health and happiness? That's the question that, that I really want to dig into with our country. It's a conversation I want to have. Before Alexandria gets me fired and gets me kicked off my podcast, let me ask you uh, just two more quick questions. How crazy does it drive you when you see Saturday and Sundays coming up filled with football stadiums filled with people not wearing masks? I mean, oh, should we not gather? I mean, what is what is going on here? You have the SEC. I'm a big Gamecock fan. williams Bryce Stadium was jumping last week. But you had 92,000 people tucked into a stadium not wearing a mask. And tonight we'll have the Buccaneers and Cowboys in the stadium that Jerry Jones built. Thousands of people gathered together. What should we do? How should we be mindful? Should we stay at home or just wear a mask and a jersey and wash our hands? Yeah, that's a good question, Bakari. And as a big sports fan, like it, you know, it both I feel the tension, right, of wanting <laughs> to be there and show up and be at games. I mean, I, yeah. I miss 
uh, I miss live sports, you know, but I also want us to be safe. And so when I see people gathered in, 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 in big crowds, uh, especially, you know, in, in parts of our country where, you know, the vaccination rates are not high, um, it worries me, you know, and in any part of the country, if you're gathered, you know, in tight quarters and you're with, uh, people, you know, really up close for a long period of time at the three hours that you might be at a football game, uh, or however long it might be, you know, those are, that's a high risk situation, especially if you're unvaccinated. So if you are vaccinated, now you're a much better, a better shape. I still think that folks who are vaccinated who are in tight quarters for a long period of time, uh, you know, outside, they may choose, uh, to, you know, to wear a mask, especially if they've got people at home who are unvaccinated, right. like small kids. And they, even though they, they're probably going to be okay if they're vaccinated, if they pick up a, a virus, then it's probably just going to be mild or asymptomatic. And then I realize they may not want to transmit it uh, to folks at home. So that mask, you know, something they may choose to wear. It's something I would do because I've got small kids at home. But it does worry me uh, when I see uh, some of those gatherings, not knowing uh, if those games have required people to be vaccinated. Of course uh, not. They came in. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, and so, yeah, I think we've got to worry about that. And like, look, you look at the, uh, there are sporting events that have, that have taken a really responsible approach to this, you know, that have not only, you know, put in system places to, uh, you know, put in place systems to really make sure players uh, are tested and that they're taking precautions, uh, you know, outside of games, but also have made sure that fans are vaccinated um, and that they have, you know, resources available to them like masks to help reduce the spread. But man, if we don't do that more universally, my worry is that at a time where we're all fatigued, we're all tired and we're all want to be done with this pandemic, that this is just going to contribute to, uh, to more spread. Who you got tonight, Buccaneers or Cowboys? Now, this is a little counterintuitive for me, but I'm, you know, I'm picking the Buccaneers. And, you know, as much as being a Miami Dolphins fan, having grown up in Miami uh, and love that team, that means that, you know, we never liked the Patriots growing up because of the rivalry. And Tom Brady, like, dashed our hopes and our dreams on many, many an occasion. But I just got to, like, I got to give the man respect. I mean, he is extraordinary. Seven out of, you know, 10 Super Bowl appearances, seven Super Bowl victories. I mean, who does that? I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. And I, I think he still, he still has it. Maybe in his 40s, the man still has it. So I'm he, picking he him is in, in, in his mid-40s. So, and I think so, too. Dak Prescott hadn't taken a snap in live contact since he got injured. It's going to be a tough go for him. I got the Buccaneers thrashing him 37 to wow. 10. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be ugly. Anyway, I have the Admiral and Surgeon General of the United States of America. I want to say thank you so much for coming through. Thank you for your amazing team and staff. You have one of the most difficult jobs in all of government, and you're handling it with such grace and expertise. We thank you for coming back to serve again. You can be going out making a ton of money doing something else, but you came back to government twice, which I don't know if you're insane or just that dedicated, but thank you for coming back regardless. Well, I appreciate that, Bakari. I don't know if I'm insane or, or about the decision or not either, but I'll tell you, I feel good about it. And here's why. It's because my kids, you know, most of all, uh, you know, my wife and I, when the president, you know, asked you know me to come back you know, and serve uh, in the midst of this terrible pandemic. It was a pretty short conversation uh, that my wife and I had about it because we just thought about this, Bakari, and I think this will mean something to you as a dad. We said, you know, our kids are small, but in a few years, they're going to be reading about this pandemic in textbooks. Yeah. They're going to ask us, you know, mom and dad, what, what did you do when the country was in crisis, when the world was in pain with the pandemic that hadn't been seen in you know, over a century? Like, what did you do? And we wanted to be able to tell them that we did everything we could. And when we had an opportunity to serve uh, and serve at scale, that we took that opportunity uh, and that we followed a lesson that my parents uh, you know, taught me when I was growing up, which is that when your community is in need, 
Uh, it is all of our responsibilities to stand up and to ask the question how we can help. Uh, and so that's, we were given the opportunity to do that. We took it, but I don't, every day, you know, I'll tell you, Bakari, I, something happens at least once a day that reminds me of how lucky I am uh, to be able to serve in a time like this. I just hope that uh, I can, in the time that I have in office, uh, you know, help make people's lives a bit better, uh, give them a little bit more ease and peace of mind, knowing that there's a pathway forward to protecting their health and well-being. And if we can, again, you know, have a conversation as a country about how to build happier, more fulfilling lives, how to build a truly people-centered life, where we prioritize our mental health, we recognize the power of our connection with one another, that to me would be incredibly rewarding. So I'm lucky, I'm blessed, and I'm grateful for this opportunity to serve. Thankful for you. Have a great day. Thanks. You too, Bakari. All, right, all the best. All the best. Bye-bye. Oh, man. That was another great episode of Bakari Sellers Podcast. Tonight, though, you know what it is. Buccaneers versus Cowboys. I hope everybody's safe. I hope the NFL is doing all they can do to make sure and encourage vaccinations, make sure people are wearing masks, wash your hands, do the things necessary so that your events don't become super spreader events. Shout out to my Gamecocks. Go Cox. You know how we do it last Saturday night with a great victory. Uh, Let's go do the same thing against East Carolina this week. Shout out to my brother, Stefan Gilmore, who has been a guest and a friend of the pod. Football season is back upon us. It feels like all is becoming right in the world if we just do what we're supposed to do. So I actually have the Bucks trouncing the Cowboys tonight just because Dak hasn't played enough football. And we'll see what happens this weekend. So enjoy yourselves. Be safe. Get vaccinated. Wear a mask so we can all enjoy the tailgating and football like we should be able to and not worry about bringing that virus back home to our family and loved ones. That's that on that. We'll see you again next Monday with another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Okay.